Welcome to DLA Piper's At the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper partners Ellen Scordino and Susan Crumplich are joined by Dwayne Valls, General Counsel of Incitro, to discuss how machine learning is being used to generate and leverage data for the development of better medicines. I'm Ellen Scordino, and I'm joined today by my DLA Piper colleague, Susan Crumplich, and our guest, Dwayne Valls, VP and General Counsel of Incitro. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm the VP and General Counsel of Incitro, a company that uses machine learning to enhance the process of drug discovery. I've been a practicing lawyer for over 20 years and have spent most of my career attending the IP matters, but this is my second position in a GC role. And before this, I was the general counsel of Zymergen, a company that focuses on enhancing microbes that make useful things, also using computational technology. Great. Thanks, Duane. And I'm Susan Crumplish, a patent litigation partner in DLA Piper's Palo Alto office. And for the past 16 years, my practice has focused on the life sciences, and I handle litigation and strategic counseling related to small molecules, biologics, cell and gene therapies, next-gen DNA sequencing, and diagnostics. Ellen, do you want to introduce yourself? Thanks. So like Susan, I'm an IP litigation partner. Unlike Susan, I'm in the Northeast. I'm in the DLA Boston office, and I've practiced for over two decades supporting life science companies in protecting their investments in drug discovery and development. So with that background, why am I here hosting a podcast related to artificial intelligence? The answer is not because I have a terrific radio voice. I mean, that's actually Dwayne, but it's not me. And I'm here because AI is here to stay. I recently read that there is a 40% projected growth from 2017 to 2024, indicating that AI will revolutionize the pharmaceutical and medical sectors. So that's very interesting from a patent perspective, but also from a philosophical one and just someone who's involved in the healthcare industry. And for myself, over the past few years, we've been reading so much about the impact of AI and the impact it's having on how life science companies develop and discover drugs and how those drugs are brought to market. And we've also been reading about how AI is changing the diagnostic and medical imaging fields. And for us as IP litigators, these scenarios raise a whole host of very interesting questions. And what makes it so fascinating is that right now there are no real solid answers to any of these questions. So it's a really interesting place for us to be. For example, who can claim inventorship and therefore ownership over an invention when AI is used as a research tool? Are AI-based inventions patentable under Section 101? So for life science companies, robust IP protection is of the utmost importance, and navigating these issues is only going to get more and more complex as AI technology improves. So Ellen, maybe we can start with just a brief overview, taking a step back and talking about the history of drug development and the traditional parameters. I want to hear Dwayne's voice a little bit more, but I will walk us back real quick. And I mentioned making a legal career out of assisting life science companies, protecting their investment. And what are those investments other than very expensive and very time consuming? We can put some numbers on that. How expensive is it to get a new drug to market? I think the average price tag is $2.6 billion, and product delivery is 10 to 15 years. So in the past few years, every dollar spent in drug development sees a return of only $0.02. Cents. And that cost is in large part driven by the number of failures. 
the generally accepted statistic on those failures is that it's only one in 10 new drugs ever reach approval in the United States. This might be tolerable for a large pharmaceutical company, but a late stage failure can be devastating to a smaller company. So, Dwayne, we want to turn it over to you because you are the expert here. But what's so fascinating to me is that you came to your current position from a background in technology. So working for Yahoo and Google and quantum computing before making the leap to Zymergen and now in Citro. And this must give you a really unique perspective in some of these questions that we're talking about. So let's dive into the meat of the discussion and maybe you could explain to us how machine learning is really changing and impacting traditional drug discovery. Yes, you mentioned I started my career much more on the tech side of things, hardware, software, internet, mobile. And what fascinated me was this promise that of all of the different areas of life that were being transformed by software and machine learning technologies, biology was the next frontier. And you have what we affectionately call it in Citro, Arum's Law, which is the reverse of Moore's Law. Moore's Law, of course, suggests that processing power will continue to go up exponentially, even as the cost of processors goes down. You have the opposite in drug discovery, where, as Ellen outlined, the cost of a new drug continues to escalate, even as success rates in finding and getting new drugs approved goes down. So the promise that using computational technologies could assist in different parts of the drug discovery process is really exciting. And there are so many ways in which biology is considered to be strange and hard to probe using engineering approaches. And chemical space on the other side where you're trying to find a therapy for a disease is so large that the challenge and the opportunity is to leverage computational technologies to make biology and drug discovery more generally, more like an engineering discipline, and to better find effective therapies once you've found a disease target, also exploring the large chemical space and chunking it down using computation. I think that's really fascinating. And I've read that there are some compounds that are actually in clinical trials right now that were discovered using AI-based and machine learning-based technologies which seems pretty amazing that a compound is already in a phase two clinical trial. Yes, and there's a number of approaches that different players are pursuing to make the process of discovery easier, both in terms of finding causes for diseases. There's a genetic component, other components, finding ways to intervene, and then finding appropriate therapies to do so. And there have been a lot of reports of companies getting to the finish line much more quickly, very prominently, of course, recently with the mRNA vaccines for COVID-19. Those were developed over time in the lab, but the ability to respond to a genetic signature of COVID-19 and discover potential vaccine candidates so quickly is definitely attributed to the ability to search and design computationally what the eventual mRNA vaccines have proven to be. So maybe we can take a step back for those who are not experts in the AI space. So from a layman's perspective, it can be used to map receptor binding onto a novel target. 
It can also be used to sift through vast amounts of data comparing healthy and diseased states to look for an errant protein expression. Dwayne, are there other examples that you could think of for those who are not in the AI space yet? Sure. We've talked about looking at the big search space for chemicals. There's a technology called DNA encoded libraries where you try to understand how different molecular variants can potentially bind to a target that you've considered, a protein that you've identified as being related to the disease. And that technology is in many ways beyond its infancy, but it's still in development. And one of the things that we at Incitra are trying to do is to apply machine learning to understand better if you find a successful binder or a chemical with certain other properties that makes it therapeutically useful, how to quickly find other molecules like it that may have either enhanced therapeutic properties or higher safety profiles. So there's a lot of work that's done by medicinal chemists to take a promising molecule and actually transform it into something that's both safe and effective and can get through the clinical trial process. And being able to explore computationally things like structure activity relationships and other characteristics of molecules that might both deliver therapeutic payload, but not have as many side effects. It's a fine-tuned art, but it requires a lot of tinkering. And if you can cut into that process using machine-learned models, then you have upside. So the success of AI, in part at least, depends on the availability of substantial amounts of data. So where's the data coming from? for a pharmaceutical company or for a company like yours that's going to aid in drug discovery with a partner? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a key observation as well, Ellen, that the lifeblood of machine learning is the data sets that you collect and study. It's not just enough to have a fancy machine learning model. And many companies have attempted to use the copious amounts of data that they have laying around from past research efforts and past experiments. And if that data is curated well, it can be very useful. One point of view that we hold is that you also need to generate data and to understand how you're generating it, why you're generating it, and how it will support machine learned models to get you the right inferences and the right insights. So our approach includes, and our name is a portmanteau for in citro and in silico, and we think the two need to work hand in hand. So we actually create cellular models of disease, we model them, and we generate a lot of the data that we analyze in the lab in order to train the models that we deploy. Same thing on the Dell side, the DNA encoded library side, in order to explore the therapeutics space and molecular space, we feel it's important to generate controlled experiments and to study actual data coming from real research in the lab alongside purely in silico data sets. So in addition to the availability of data, what are the other issues that you face in using AI early on in drug discovery? Well, there is the availability of data and you have to 
pose the right questions in order to get the right answers back. So it's not just enough to have the right data sets that have been well curated, but you have to know exactly what you're trying to find out and whether the question you're posing is really amenable to getting back an answer that you can have confidence in, regardless of the proposition that you're going for. So the inference models that you're setting up are quite important, and understanding what your use cases are is also quite important. So it's a long pipeline between discovery and development, having a lead compound and then seeing it through to the clinic. So part of how we approach this big problem set is just to say, what are the questions along the way that machine learning may be really well situated to have us answer? And we'll look at everything from target discovery to potential therapy discovery, as well as improvements to the clinical trial process. So one of the challenges in drug discovery, why is there heirlooms law? Why is it becoming more expensive with a lower chance of success? There are many answers to that question, but one of them is that for a lot of diseases, the low-hanging fruits have been picked already, where if it's a genetic disease, if there's just an association between a single genetic variant or the absence of a gene and the disease, that's a little more straightforward to address. Not in all cases, but when you have polygenic diseases where there's different genetic interactions, there's interactions between genes and the environment, it's a little tougher to both determine the cause and then find a drug that can treat it. So being able to look at covariates and to understand how to develop a carefully balanced therapy that needs to address different causes of the disease, those are the kinds of problems that machine learning is better suited to, in addition to, again, searching a vast chemical space to find a handful of potential candidates. So, Dwayne, you mentioned that Incitro will create cellular models of disease to gather the data that you can then use to train your algorithms. Are you actually in the lab or are you working with folks in the lab to get that data? Yeah, so me personally, I do go into the lab from time to time, but <laughs> my work is best done outside of the lab. But as a company, yeah. we do have scientists and their machine learning engineering partners who spend a lot of time in the lab. And we work with stem cells and induced pluripotent stem cells on the premise that if you create cellular models of disease that actually use human tissues, that your understandings will be that much greater than if you use only a traditional mouse model or use other mammals to understand how diseases progress and how therapies may be effective against them. We're also in an era where understanding what may happen in the lab with mice becomes a little more troublesome in terms of being able to predict what's going to happen with human beings. So while studying tissue culture isn't the same as studying a live human being, in terms of understanding the mechanisms of disease and the impact of therapies on those diseases, they give us a closer proxy than some of the traditional ways of understanding a potential cure for disease. So should we make a connection to IP or to patent law? 
And to the extent you're in the lab, whether that data might belong to your organization, how do you think the organization should deal with the ownership of the data? That's a complex question. We feel good about data sets that we generate in terms of the ownership and the progeny of the data and how we could potentially use it. With our research partnerships, we try to get clinical data to study the nature of disease in real people and how prior efforts to treat the disease, how those have turned out. So that raises issues around HIPAA and health privacy, as well as understanding that this data is sourced from a partner. So if you put that into a machine learned model and what comes out on the other side, how do you factor in the progeny of the starting point? data sets and who owns that at the end. These are issues that we need to work through in many cases. And there's also the availability of third-party data sets. Increasingly, there's some interesting data sets that have been well-produced and well-curated. Sometimes you just want access to some of those to train a model that you'll then deploy on data that you've generated yourself or have gotten from a partner. And the terms and conditions around these available data sets, whether they're from academic institutions, national repositories, or from private collections, vary. Some take an open source approach. You see terms of use that look like open source licenses. Others, it's very ad hoc. So you have to understand whether data sets can be used for research purposes only, if you're able to use that data for commercial applications. So there is a whole host of issues, and I've been thinking about, is it even worth thinking about a specific practice area in the law around data rights because of the growth of machine learning and this premise that you mentioned, and I very much agree with, that it's really the data sets that drive the value in machine learning and not the models alone. So there are a lot of new issues emerging around valuable data sets and how we think about the ownership as the data is transformed at different stages of the analytical process. And I think as an IP litigator, it's not just the ownership of the data that's transforming, but can someone reach back if you have some open source data in your data set at some point? Does that give some user down the road an ability to reach back and say, no, I actually own part of this data set and whatever invention came out of that? I'm sure we're going to see litigation in the future, maybe not in the next year or two, but certainly in the next 10 years. Yeah, it's a little more abstract, but there have been instances. I know there was a case, there have probably been other since, but John Moore versus the UC Regents, which based on some biopsy tissues that were taken, a derivative tissue line that was useful for research was developed from a gentleman's biopsy tissues. And the question was about permission. Did he really give permission for the university to go beyond just testing the biopsy tissues and developing this other cell line. And you can imagine an analogy here. I think it is much more attenuated, and particularly if what comes out of a model in terms of predictions isn't direct correspondence to what has gone in, a data set reflecting a physical state in one or more individuals at the outset. But that chain, that nexus between starting point and end point is there. And I'm sure in certain use cases, it could be controversial. 
and in patent law, of course, ownership is tied up with inventorship and ideas of who can actually use the invention or grant rights to the invention. Again, I know there's a lot of chatter about who's actually the inventor of a invention that includes machine learning. Is it the creator of the data set? Is it the programmer who actually came up with the algorithm? Is it the researcher in the lab who's applying the algorithm to the data? And I don't think there's an easy answer, although it looks like the U.S. Patent Office and the European Patent Office have said an AI algorithm cannot be an inventor standing on its own. But I think there are a lot of nuances around that that we haven't even begun to explore yet. Yes, and it's a tricky area. I'd say, particularly in the work that we do, we don't just have AIs wandering around our labs doing self-supervised <laughs> research. We train a variety of models. We have pipelines, and it's very deliberate. Again, the curation of the data sets and the inference models that we set up where we're trying to answer specific questions, all very much a function of human ingenuity, creativity, and application. But you can't imagine, and I think some of the cases that have generated controversy are if you have a machine learning model that's been trained already and is acting more autonomously, and it's been trained to do one thing, but without being very specific about how it's going to go about getting to a result. The results that it produces are themselves very innovative. And the nexus between that result, how the model came up with it, and human intervention is very attenuated, then it raises some of those questions. So I do imagine that as AI across industries really becomes more sophisticated you have models that spent a long time being trained, but then are capable of large degrees of freedom and creativity, quote unquote, in how they come up with outputs that may be considered inventive. We'll see more of these issues. Although at that point, if you're, I guess, in a simple model, applying an algorithm to a bunch of data, is the outcome really actually patentable at all? That might raise some one-on-one -on -one issues given the way the case law is going. That's right. So as my bias on one-on-one -on -one issues is that it becomes troublesome when you try to answer too many questions in the patent law using the lens of one-on-one -on -one when written description, novelty, obviously could get you there much sooner. Yep. You're correct. It really, and I took pains to say, if that output is otherwise considered inventive, then we may face some tricky issues. But that if... In many cases, if you dig, we'll say, well, maybe this doesn't reach that threshold of novelty and obviousness. I like that you guys may have lost half of our listeners by referring to 101 and <laughs> 112 and 102 and 103 issues. What do you see as a challenge that might affect the full-fledged adoption of AI by the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure what would really pose a hurdle to adoption. A lot of times industries that have a long practice of doing things in a certain way, where in the past that's yielded results and continues to, will very reluctantly take on new approaches, especially if they're unproven. But given Eurom's law, where the costs for new drugs keep going up and the success rates are going down, for many 
years now, you've seen large pharma companies turning to startups that may have one or another whiz-bang technique that may allow them to get to their goals sooner in a particular indication area. And in many ways, I see the computational revolution as just being a continuum of that. Initially, it wasn't machine learning driven startups that were getting a lot of the attention. They were just trying different conventional techniques, but with additional advancements and creativity. And all you need is a few successes that are verifiable and repeatable to get attention. So I don't see significant hurdles unless the whole premise that computation can make drug discovery more of an engineering discipline proves not to be correct. And oftentimes these things are overestimated in the short run, but underestimated in the long run. And there may be some innovations that are not as sexy and compelling, but may really help to normalize computational approaches and create a whole new baseline of what can be done with them. One analogy from my days at Yahoo and Google is thinking about big data. You almost hardly hear that term anymore. The idea that you can analyze large data sets to come up with different insights about your business or your customers that's become ubiquitous. It's not just something that big internet companies use anymore, but it's available to everyday businesses. There are companies that that's what they've done. They've gone public on providing big data related services such that it's now something as we all sit in seas of data, making sense of it is now a little more commonplace. So my sense of the long-term prospects for machine learning and drug discovery and the pharmaceutical world more generally is that some of the techniques that right now are exploratory or exotic will become a little more commonplace, will be adopted by in-house departments, and you'll always have cutting edge and you'll always have startups pushing that cutting edge. But I really don't see this either going bust or there being meaningful hurdles. Now, with that said, I think there's still a lot of work to do to figure out if you are establishing connections between a drug candidate and a therapeutic outcome, and that's been done entirely computationally, you have to think about the typical regulatory process and what standards of proof will be accepted to get a drug through relative to any perceived shortcuts that were taken. I mean, the goal is to have shortcuts, but that very process may mean that we have to revisit some of the ways in which we validate drugs, candidates in clinical trials, and we stratify patient populations for purposes of forming clinical trial groups. So I think some of that policy work still needs to be done but I've seen some promising signs coming out of the FDA that they're also looking to the computational revolution and what it can bring and that the agency is willing to think flexibly, but with discipline about how some of these new approaches can be integrated into the process. Well, I like everything about what you said there and completely agree that one of the biggest challenges is inertia or changing things at large companies from how it was done. I think talking about AI use in drug discovery is just also a small part or a 
small step in the drug development process where AI is going to be used. There's going to be so many other areas in the entire spectrum of drug development where AI can be used. So whether it's in formulation and looking at excipient compatibility or specification compliance, drug manufacturing, clinical trial design, which I think you talked about also. But ultimately, hopefully, AI will not only speed up the time needed for products to come to market, but also actually improve the overall safety and efficacy of the process. Yes, and that would be the hope. So to give an example, we've devised and filed a patent on a way to take contrast images, which are low-dimensional, basic contrast images, and convert them into the richness of a bright field image, which is traditionally what's used to see microscopic detail at a very rich level where you want to bring out all of the phenotypic characteristics. We've trained a model to take easier to produce, non-intrusive, you don't have to stain the tissue samples so it's non-destructive, computationally, lower resource utilization, We've taken those images and imbued them with all of the richness of more intensive images, bright field images, and that helps to accelerate our experimental process. So it could be something as basic as that versus just being able to predict and choose the right cohort to be part of a clinical trial because if you have too large a cohort and there are some biomarkers that suggest, oh, at least 10% of these patients aren't going to respond well. If you understand that ahead of time, it can mean the difference between a successful versus a failed trial. So everything from tools that we use to ultimate insights about what will make a successful clinical process, how can we target a promising drug so that it hits the patients that it needs to without side effects and to the degree of efficacy. We're looking at all stages and everything in between to see how we can transform the whole enterprise. Well, Dwayne, this has been a fascinating conversation for both Ellen and myself, and I really want to thank you so much for your time and your expertise. It's just been really, really interesting. And I think we could probably have a podcast on every one of these small subjects that we talked about. We could talk for hours about all of these. But again, I want to thank you. And it sounds like these issues are only going to get more complex as AI improves. So I think we'll be speaking again in the future and without a shortage of things to talk about for sure. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate that you both are thinking about these issues as well. And who knows when they may appear in your work. But yeah, there's just a lot here to remain fascinated about. So thank you for involving me in the discussion. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to DLA Pipers at the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising. 
requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast.